Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Shadows. I'm Stuart Best. Where the paranormal is normal. Where that which you thought you knew, you didn't. And where the future can be known, if you know exactly where to look. Well, good evening, everyone. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we're welcoming Barry Rothman on tonight. And uh, we also got Larry Taylor on. Hi, Larry. Hey, guys. Anyway, um, there's a lot going on out there in research and whatnot. A lot of mysteries are being revealed. Uh, It's just we're in a time really, though, of, I don't know how to word it, apostasy, away from Scripture, away from all of it where the Bible basically, like, I can't think of his name now, Harari, of the World Economic Forum, said, well, the Bible's just mythology. It's all a joke. It's all a hoax. And uh, on and on they go with it. Um, It's being rejected out of hand as anything worthwhile. And it's too bad that that is happening because mathematically you can prove that the Bible is an absolutely accurate uh, rendition, I believe, of absolute reality. The mathematical continuity of the scriptures is undeniable. And there's many, many uh, expert in mathematics that has come forward and proved it. So they can reject it all they want. And I know we get a lot of eye rolling on this show because people just can't fathom what that some of this stuff really is real and they don't think it is and they can't wrap their mind around it that it even could be so that with that being said uh barry is uh, an expert in the torah codes and he's found out all kinds of information throughout the years and so we uh welcome you aboard uh night shadows tonight barry glad to have you on good to be back thanks for the invitation uh, I noticed uh, tonight and going over what we had done before that, that four years ago we did a show on time, uh, but I'm going to knock the, the, the daylight almost out of anybody who thinks that uh, we can't prove uh, that the Torah is, has got the answers in it. Um, you started off by saying, or it was actually the recording before, uh, with the, the opening that, uh, you know, you could uh, find the future if you knew where to look. Well, tonight I'm going to show you where to look, and I'm going to talk, talk about the math of it, uh, which is irrefutable. And uh, I'm going to basically answer, I think, if, if, uh, if we don't get censored, I'm going to answer <laughs> most of the questions that most people have in life, and I'm not kidding on yeah. this thing. I'm deadly serious tonight. I've reached that after 25 years of research. Uh, it took me to the age of 75, but I've gotten to the point where I think I have the answers. And uh, and with that, we'll start. We're going to go down uh, through one article on my website. My website is Rothman, R-O-F-F-M-A-N, MarsResearch.com. And we're going to go over and what's on the table of contents there is the very last article. 
Uh, and that article is uh, Andrew Basiago, Time and Morris Traveler, question mark. It's dated today, 727-2022. So um, I have learned an enormous amount of information and material about uh, time and how to move in it in the last four years since we spoke about this subject. And uh, like I said, I, I hope the, the government allows us to get through this tonight. I'm going to start out uh, sim- uh, simply by showing you how the code works. Um, the man that I'm interested in tonight and that has been on a lot of other shows like yours before is Andrew D. Bastiago. And uh, he's an attorney. I think he lives in Seattle right now. He's 60 years old. He's currently blind, and he has uh, terminal, what's probably terminal um, kidney disease. He's got kidney malfunction. He's on dialysis currently. But this is the guy that I, and I've heard about him for 30 years, and for 30 years at least I dismissed him as a nutcase because I heard he claimed that he had traveled back in time to, to Lincoln at Gettysburg and that he had been to Mars, and it just sounded like a lunatic claim and uh, boy, did I do him a disservice and everybody else a disservice for doing that. He can prove, and I can prove with him, a lot of what he has to say. Now, in terms of how certain that that proof is, you'll make some judgments on that. Uh, so the first thing I want you to do is I want you to go to that article if, uh, if you're, you've got your computer open. Otherwise, I'll describe what I see here on the screen. And this, again, is Andrew Basiago, Time and uh, Morris Traveler, question mark. And we're going to look at figures 1A, 1B, and 1C on it. Now, figure 1A has only got 16 letters in it. And these are all these letters that you see on the screen, if you're looking at the, at the matrix, the Torah code matrix, all of them are from the Torah. The only place the code is found is in the first five books of the, of, uh, the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, you're wasting your time if you look anywhere else. Uh, there's been enough people who've looked at it for a long enough time. That's where the code is. The code is called an ELS code, which means equidistant letter sequence. That means that when you're looking for a guy, in this case, uh, I found the name A. Basiago encoded, so A for Andrew. Uh, it's eight letters, and between each letter, uh, the computer that uh, searches the, the Torah uh, computer, computer code uh, program, by the way, is this code finder um, by Kevin Akers in Australia. Uh, you have to skip 37,159 letters. So in other words, from the A for Andrew to the B for Basiago, 37,159 letters. You go to the next letter, uh, which is going to be an Aleph. It's going to be, again, another 37,159 letters, etc. So this matrix... Uh, it covers, uh, let me see, uh, if I get it over here, maybe I cut that out. Um, well, anyway, it's got 37,159 letters on, oh, on each line. It covers a total of 260,122 letters in Torah. Now, there's only, uh, there's only in, uh, in all of the Torah, 304,805 letters. So to get up to the skip this size, uh, the chances are, and it, this happened here, the computer is going to make one pass through the Torah and it's going to go and make a second pass when it finishes the first pass and if it has to do a third or fourth or whatever, 
It will, but it'll still always look for exactly that number of letters because that's where it found the ELS in between each one. If I make more than one pass through the computer, that's called a wrap search. This is a wrap search. If I can get every all the letters in of a, of a name, that's an unwrap search. So what do we have here? We have in red the first column on the left says A. Basiago. There's nothing else there. There's no letters in between any of those letters. There's no letters before or after that are shown. Now, since he claimed to be a time traveler, very obviously, the first word I'm going to look at uh, in conjunction with this man is going to be Zaman in Hebrew, and that means time. It's spelled Zion, which is a Z, Mem, which is an M, and Nun, which is an N. Three letters. Zaman, time. And mm -hmm. I find that on that second letter, that second column, I only have eight letters to find the three little letters of Zaman. And like in English, where a Z is rare, and Hebrew is Zion is rare also. So it's the chances that I'm going to find that are not too great if it's by chance. However, if it's put down here deliberately, that's another matter. We're looking at a delivery code here. We're looking at somebody who somehow, whether it was God, possibility number one, whether it was uh, an alien who went back in time, possibility number two, whether it was a member of an intelligence agency like uh, my good buddies that uh, who worked for Fort Huachuca or you know, NSA or whoever, uh, uh, could be an Israeli intelligence agency, could be for another kind of country also. But uh, if it was an Israeli, if it was an intelligence agency, then um, you know they would have to have somehow taken the events of the future in current times and sent them back almost uh, for, well, about 3,300 years to Moses and have this, uh, have this code dictated to him where, and then it had to be preserved right for almost 4,000 years. And then we find it with a, with a computer today. You're not going to find this stuff without a computer. If you had a stuff with like three, four, five letters, you might do that. But not when you have to examine every letter, you know, uh, out to... <laughs> Uh, really, 150, uh, 2,403 would be the, the largest skip that you ever used, which is a little, one more letter than half of the letters in Torah. So uh, it could have been a person, and, um, and uh, there are reasons for that we'll talk about in the show. But right now, God remains, in my, in my point of view, the top suspect. However, uh, uh, knowing what I know... Uh, it certainly, if there's a second possibility, I would look to a human in, in an intelligence service, either here in Israel in the future, someplace like that. So we find, and I show this in, in uh, blue and yellow, that uh, Zaman is here. So of the eight letters that we can possibly look at, if we're going to get it as close to 16 letters to show the whole area, we only have eight letters to choose from, and the word Zaman is there. Uh, it starts uh, right next to the, the B for Basiago, and then you, it's vertical. You just go down the column, uh, and you'll see the you'll see the three letters that are right there. What are the odds against this now? Okay, so here's where we come into the mathematical question. Now, for me to calculate that, I have a spreadsheet that I use, and um, first column I put in the term, and here it says time skips. Plus or minus 37,159 only. I'm looking to see if I can find the words Zaman in what I call a special case skip. There are four special case skips. They are 
plus one, like in the open text, minus one, backwards, at, at one letter at a time. Uh, now, Hebrew is written uh, backwards compared backwards, to English. Yeah. But, but yeah. we're talking about backwards in terms of uh, Hebrew, minus one. Um, the 37-159 is the skip of uh, A. Bastiago. So, so I want to know if it, if it comes in exactly at that same skip, then it will be like you see here, parallel, and no skips in between lines that are shown. And so, and it'll be, you know, uh, well, in this case, uh, it, it, it has to be in the second column. It can't be in the first column. Why can't it be in the first column? It can't be in the first column because the letters of Zaman are not found in A. Bastiago. So it leaves us with one column of eight letters to look at. Uh, now, the next column, I, I state the uh, skips used. Uh, on the figure, it was 37,159, same skip as A. Basiago. Number of letters in Torah, um, actually, I put down 16, it looks like, on this chart, which is the two columns and eight rows. And then we divide that by number of letters in Torah, 304,805. Uh, the quotient equals to something I call letter frequency. Uh, which I then multiply by eight letters, and I wind up with, uh, I take that uh, some equation. This is this is complex to know, but I got a final figure here of 2,381. And looking at the chart right now, I can see that although this chart says there was one chance in 2,381 that would uh, that I would get this match, the reality is it's better than that. It's double that, uh, almost of more than 4,600 to one. Why? Because I'm saying I have 16 letters in Torah shown, but I only had a choice of eight letters since A. Basiago did not have the letters uh, Zion Memnun in it. I only had a choice of the second column to look at. So, therefore, I had eight letters. I had to get the three letters in eight. And so it would be actually double this. I, that'll be a correction I'll make later on tonight. But it's a fantastic find. Now, if I expand the matrix to 72 letters, then I wind up with figure 1B. It still has A. Basiago in the red going down. It still has time in the yellow going down next to it, to the right of it. But to the left of it, you know, I've got uh, more columns now so I can fit in more things. So when I go to the third row, of this, uh, Basiago is crossed directly by uh, after the flood. Now, to me, as a Jew, that's interesting. I'm thinking of Noah's flood, and I'm thinking that uh, that's something I would like to check if I'm in the the program that supervises it, the government program that supervises it, is Project uh, Pegasus. So this is not some program this guy made up out of his head. It involves thousands of people, and the name of the program is Pegasus. So if I'm if I'm going down and they're asking me where do I want to go, if I can go back as far in time as I can go, well, one thing that comes into my mind is Noah's flood. Why? Because uh, as a scientist, and I know a lot of geology, I have to write a lot about geology. As a scientist, I know that there's no evidence uh, supporting what's in the open text of the Torah. It may have some hidden meaning or encoded meaning like we're seeing here. 
But the idea that all the mountains of the Earth, including Mount Everest, would recover to a depth of 15 cubits, um, was Mount Everest ever, uh, ever under underwater? Yes, it was. Before uh, it, the plate that it sits on, uh, which was uh, with the Indian Ocean, you know, crashed into Asia millions or hundreds of millions of years ago and, and pushed up the mountains that, that include the Himalayas. Uh, when that, when before that happened, there were seashells and on the seafloor and so forth. So you find fossils up there. But if our radioactive dating is correct, and our understanding of time is correct, <laughs> that, that involves a little bit. But if it is, you know, then uh, we should not have uh, evidence for a flood with a time of Noah, which was about 4,000 years ago. Not for the whole world. Maybe certain local areas, uh, like near the Black Sea or something. You know, um, you know, when uh, there was an opening to the Black Sea, before that it was, it was, it was you know, sealed off, and then a couple earthquakes or whatever, something knocked it open, and the water started flowing. And we can find evidence for uh, the towns that were under that sea um, and if, we, if we look. We do diving expeditions over there. So that's interesting. But you know what? If I were a Christian, uh, I would be interested in going back and looking for, for Jesus. And uh, and Basiego makes claims about that that I'll discuss later in the show. But here on this line, we have reference to after the flood. So we're, we have the idea of going back, thinking of going back a long ways in time. The next line down is journey or travel. So in other words, we have on this matrix at uh, the skip of uh, a Basiego time, and in the open text, the word travel and uh, or journey. And so that's, now we're getting very specific as to what I want to see with Abatiago. The only other terms on at this size with only 72 letters showing, <coughs> which is eight rows in <coughs> column. But tomorrow is there, but that's at skip three, which is not a special case skip, and uh, all quickly is there at skip one. Now, figure one C, the other thing we're just going to talk about tonight, I have spent enormous amount of time doing research with my son, Dr. David Alexander Rothman, who's a, a physicist and um, uh, who went to, he got his physics, uh, physics PhD at, at University of Florida, but he did his postdoc in Yale. So we've been working on Mars for, God, I don't know, I think it's at least 12 or 13 years together. And we wrote a 1,200-page report, which is uh, uh, on on this website over here. I'll, I'll link to it later. Mars correct critique of all all NASA Mars weather data. We say the government's lying about everything that has to do with Mars. Everything. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Mars is over here at the same skip as Abasiago, <clears throat> but it goes the opposite way. It goes uh, instead of top down, it goes from the bottom up. You know, the last letter to the first letter, but it's in the same column there. Mathematically. Uh, the best of these matrices is the, is the middle one is 72 letters. The other one, eight, uh, the other one with Mars on it takes it up to 162 letters, which is a bit much. Uh, but if I if I do the one that's got uh, 72 letters in it, odds against that were about 428 million million letters to one. So oh. <laughs> it's very very significant. Wow. Um, People want to know if they can find their 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 fate in the code. Now, from what I see, uh, certainly anybody that's uh, 
done anything significant in, in life and, uh, to, to, to get recorded in like a newspaper. Drossman, who wrote the book The Bible Code, uh, which, which attracted me to the studies back in 1997, said mm-hmm. anything that was in the New York Times, you know, would be in the code. I, I'm sorry to use that that example because the New York Times went from being a great newspaper to a piece of junk. In my opinion, it's trash, and it, it does not print the the, the truth uh, in too many too many areas. They need to do much better than they've done. They need to go back to their old standards. But um, at any rate. Um, as far as regular people, I would like to say everybody's in there, and maybe they are depending on the spelling of their name, and I'll talk about spelling in a little while. But basically, <clears throat> it seems to be that the people that are in the code, normally, if I look for their names, um, most likely to be found <clears throat> would be a spelling that is eight letters. That seems to be almost like in music, there's an uh, what is it, an eight-letter octave or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems the code seems to operate on a similar uh, fashion. So it could be eight letters in the last name. It could be uh, for a combination of a short first name, the short last name, or it could be the first letter, the, abbrevi- the abbreviation for the first letter, and then the last name it would be the, the next seven letters, as is the case in this particular matrix. So uh, in terms of looking for everybody's fate, um, and could, by the way, it could be something else that, uh, you know, you, you could look for... Uh, Maybe their accomplishment, and that would be encoded. Might might have the year, might have uh, a short version of the name, but the most, but the access term then would be uh, a deed or an act rather than a person. Um, but if you've got an 18-letter name or a 20-letter name, and it's got these once you these and Q's in it or something like that, it's not going to be in here. I can tell you that there's no sense you even wasting your time looking. And normally, I can find most most names uh, with eight letters. Why can I find most with eight letters? Because you don't always have to put the vowels in in Hebrew. With Hebrew, uh, vowels are shown with dots and dashes and so forth. But in the Torah, and we're talking about the Torah code here, you don't see those. If you walk into a synagogue and you open a you open any Torah in the world, you're going to see the same 304,805 letters, but you're not going to see the vowels. So the reader, uh, somebody who reads it is called a Valkorei in Hebrew, master of the reading, would know where the vowels are implied, and he would therefore uh, put them in in the right place. And if he's not sure, he can check a, a, a book that is printed rather than a scroll. Uh, a book like that would be called a Chumash for five, because it's the five books of Moses. He would look there, and it, it would print what the vowels are, uh, but... It, but they're not the vowels are not part of the code. However, you can get away with, uh, with as I said, for a name using eight, nine, or ten letters, whatever, for a very long name. If if you uh, are in the right place, you, you insert the, the vowels that are implied. And sometimes you can see which of the original were uh, which vowels. If you look in a chumash, again, you won't see it in a Torah. Uh, or um, you know, you ask an expert or somebody who speaks the language fluently, and they, they may know it. All right, so the next thing we're going to talk about would be the similarity between the, the Torah Code and Project Pegasus. Hi. Um, the date was August the 1st, we've, uh, nine, uh, I'm sorry, 2016. We've discussed this before. I went to the Cape Canaveral Public Library uh, looking to return a book, uh, that I had just read and check out a, a science fiction book for the weekend 
and uh, you know, just getting ready to relax and do a little fun reading over there. I was not in the library for more than I would say three to five minutes tops. I don't think it was five minutes. I think three or four minutes is a more accurate estimate. During that time, I went to the science fiction section. I spotted a book that was uh, sitting there. Um, the name of the book was Slant by Greg Bear. It was about nanotechnology and artificial intelligence. Since my son had just finished his Ph.D. Uh, and his thesis was on nanotechnology, um, I checked out that book. So I went over to the, uh, to, you know, to the librarian, checked out the book. There was no line. And I went outside, and I was about to go back in my car and, and drive home. But I couldn't get into the car. But the reason I couldn't get into the car is that during those uh, three or four minutes I was inside, a, a gentleman had uh, driven in and, and parked uh, one space away from me to my left. And he was standing between his car and my door. And uh, he said, uh, you know, he, he said he wanted to thank me for my service because I was wearing a, uh, a Coast Guard retired hat. And I had a, I think I had, I had a Navy shirt on. I had been, been both Coast Guard and the Navy total 34 years but he was not going to let me go anyplace he wanted me to wanted to talk to me and uh within a minute or so the conversation was at his behest on artificial intelligence and nanotechnology and i'm thinking what the hell is this i just checked out a book on that you know it's in my hand over here but you can't see you can't see the book you know he was outside he wasn't inside and we start talking, this guy knew a lot about me. In fact, he knew way too much about me. In fact, he, I mean, he was familiar with my writing and stuff like that. But I didn't plan on seeing him or meeting him, you know. And he hadn't been inside. And I, I you know, I had just driven from my home to pay my, my mortgage at Wells Fargo. And then I went to the library after that. Did not announce my plans to do anything like that, I mean, he knew exactly where to park his car when, and he knew what the damn book was about that was in my hand. So that was definitely strange. We got to talking a little bit more, and it got to the point where I, I, I figured this guy's got to be some kind of a spy from NSA or whatever. He lived not too far from NSA, as a matter of fact. You know, the National uh, <laughs> Security Agency up there in uh, in Maryland. So uh, at any rate, uh, we started talking, and then he says to me, and this is the only thing unpleasant I've ever heard from any of these people, uh, he said, you know, I knew somebody just like you, and the uh, military came, and you know, the government came and, and took his, uh, took his uh, well, they, first they inserted uh, child pornography on it, and then they took it and they brought charges against him, and he never owned a computer again. So I took that as a direct threat, and frankly, I said to him, "You try that shit." I said, "As a Jew, unless I'm, unless you've got me locked up, I'm going to be on the plane, the next plane to Israel. I will get off the plane. I, as a Jew, under the right of return, I will ask for Israeli citizenship, and I will never stop writing about you for the rest of your life and what you guys are up to." So uh, we spoke a little bit more. Things got friendlier. And we went on for about a half an hour. But he saw I was serious. He saw I was not, I, it was not going to scare me off. But uh, I, I was still somewhat obviously in a state of shock. But, you know, he, he, but on the other hand, I, I knew I had a fan on my hands over here. At one point, uh, 
I, I asked him if he wanted my card. And my uh, calling card has got my name on it. It's got my my Coast Guard rank was uh, the, the lieutenant, like a captain in the Army. Uh, probably I was when I retired at 60 from the military. I was the oldest lieutenant on active duty at the time. And that's another story. But at any rate, uh, you know, I gave my card, and it had uh, the fact that I was an expert in Martian meteorology, which is what the 1,200-page report is about that we've got on the site. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, and he said he was a real fan of that. But the way he acted when he took the card from me was weird, especially after the, the conversation started off so negative. He acted like I had handed him a copy of the Magna Carta or the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. Can I keep this? Yeah, you can keep it. But, I mean, he was, like, so excited that he could keep that. And that was weird. I mean, that really in my head when I'm seeing how he's reacting to that. So, at any rate, um, he... You know, he knew what he knew about David. He knew about my son. And he uh, somehow, and uh, he knew that um, what he what he was writing about. So he had this information when he went there to meet me. Obviously, he, somehow he figured out when I was how I was going to where I would be and when, and what I would check out. And as I started to wonder about that more over the next nine months or so, uh, it occurred to me that damn, this guy seemed to have some information for the future. Now, now when he mentioned the artificial intelligence, my son was not into that at that time. But four months later, when he was doing his postdoc at Yale, yes, he got into it. He learned how to do it, how to program it. So that was almost like a prediction uh, to a certain extent. But, you know, you check out a library book, and, uh, you know, there's going to be an electronic copy. The thing about this guy is that he was not... (laughs) It wasn't enough time for him to get the electronic copy unless he came there with a, with a copy in his pocket from someplace else. Like, <laughs> he got it in the future. So for a long time, I figured, well, this this is, it sounds great, but it's pie-in-the-sky stuff. You can't really prove it. Maybe it's all coincidence. I don't know. I'm trying to, trying to look and, and forever understand what's going on. Uh, I went back to the library uh, in May the next year, and I went to find the book, Slant, um, again. And um, when I got back there, um, I asked them to pull the, the information on the, car, uh, on the book and find out when it was checked out. It did not show that it was checked out when I did check it out. It showed it had been like four months before that. So somebody had altered or had played with the record because I knew damn well when I checked out the book. You know, I've been writing about it ever since that time. So things weren't checking out that, that right, right that time. But um, with time, as time went on, there was the other little fact that he had admitted uh, where he worked at, at least at one point. He said that he worked at Fort Huachuca. Now, I, that was not until I told him that Fort Huachuca was in Arizona, was monitoring my stuff every day uh, tremendously for a couple of years. When I say tremendously, I mean I was getting Fort Huachuca hits up to 1,000, 2,000. I've had 2,000. Yesterday I had 2,831 hits from the U.S. military, and most of it seemed like with Fort Huachuca. A couple thousand were from Fort Huachuca. So what, what the need is the military is to come to my website with that kind of frequency. I mean, I give them whatever, whatever they ask for because uh, I'm retired military. 
But, you know, uh, this was very strange also. So it was kind of an indication that I was on to something that they were interested in enough to come to my site that many times um, and also uh, to send somebody out to interview me like that. So um, anyway, can everybody find their fate here? Not necessarily. But similarities, like, of course, the military is going to be very interested in what I got into the terror codes for in the first place. I, as a retired at the time, I was a retired military officer. They called me back to active duty, and this sounds weird, at the age of 55. I had been off active mm-hmm. duty for like a decade. They called me back at 55 and held me for five years until I turned 60. You know, I, mean, I was delighted. I was making a fortune. I, I was stationed at uh, um, Coast Guard Island in uh, Alameda, California, which I loved at the time. That's before the bay was ruined by a lot of uh, politicians that uh, – just had no common sense whatsoever but at any rate it was it was great out there at that time so it was beautiful duty and we were living there on the beach over there and you know in, in uh, san francisco uh, bay or whatever and you know i liked it an awful lot but uh at any rate um this uh, pegasus uh i got into it because as a military officer and i, I wrote war plans for a living uh, I wanted to know, was there some way that we could use the code for military purposes, for intelligence purposes? And these people who were interested in me uh, were all intelligence agents. Now, there was an intelligence agent, a very, very good friend of mine, who was a captain, uh, you know, an 06 captain, like a colonel. And he was trying to get the military to, to take a look uh, at what I was doing for when I was on active duty, when I just started out with the program. Uh, but he never succeeded. However, well, he did not succeed, and I, I speak to him frequently. I just spoke to him like uh, two days ago. Um, yeah, he's probably about seventy-eight or seventy-nine right now. When I when I speak to him, I mean, we, this is this is what we talk about. But the guy, at any rate, he tried to get he tried to get the military to take it. They didn't take it at the time, but obviously they are very interested in it, and they know that uh, from the math. They know the math is legitimate. It's been certified by some of the top mathematicians in the world that, yeah, this is good math, and this stuff really is not to be expected. So you you had some words early, maybe in the introduction, about proving something, you know, and, 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 and you know, we turn to math as for, for the way to, to do that in science. And if you don't have numbers, you don't have anything, and you're going to see, and on my side, and I'm sure you know by now that for just about every Torah codes matrix, for every picture I've taken of it, here's the way the letters are arranged after the computer search is done. Then I put the spreadsheet up with the numbers, you know, with the math. And so I leave it there for any mathematician who wants to do it. You want to you want to find this? Just buy a copy of Code Finder. I think it sells for like uh, I don't know, probably for forty nine dollars or something like that. I haven't looked at for, I looked at it for a while. We'll see what it goes for. Um, but, you know, you get a copy of Code Finder, and uh, they have uh, explained how to use it. There's a, a translation box so you can look up words in English. It'll translate it to Hebrew, and it's only in Hebrew, the code. They have other things on the, the Code Finder program, but they're useless. So they're, they're only for control purposes. And uh, so you see, but, the, yeah, the, the math backs this stuff totally. All right, so now we'll move on over here. I've killed the 35 minutes, I see. Um Pegasus was to find information. Yeah, we, it was, was actually a program was set up to move either people or at least what they can see into the past or future. And it was set up by our intelligence agency. 
and the CIA. Um, so I was basically doing the same thing, except instead of me having the fancy equipment, which seems to be related to what's needed for teleportation, and I have a report in this in this article here from the Air Force that confirms that the Air Force is aware that teleportation is real. The name of the report is kind of interesting, and I know the author of it also. The name of the report, let me skip down here, it's at the very end. Uh, let me see, is Teleportation Physics Study by Dr. Eric W. Davis, uh, Warp Drive Metrics. Uh, he's out in Las Vegas. Uh, there's an official DOZ number for this report, uh, AFRL-POR-ED-TOR-2003-0034. And in this report, it says on page 56, that's not page 56 of the, the PDF here, but page 56 of uh, the original document, it says the following. Most claimed instances of human teleportation of the body come from one place uh, to another have been unwitnessed, but there are a small number of credible reports of individuals who reported being teleported to or from UFOs during a UFO close encounter which were scientifically investigated, looked at by Valley in 1988, 1990, and 1997. So this is an official Air Force report that before the Pentagon admitted these tic-tac UFOs that we've been seeing filmed by the uh, F-18 fighters, we've seen them on the news for a couple of years now, Fox mm-hmm. especially suggest them. This, uh, when this was report that? was saying back then that there are UFOs, A and B, they can teleport people. So therefore, when was that dated? See if I Do you remember? Uh, well, I'll see if it's here. I got the whole report here. Um, dates covered, it says, uh, 30 January 2001 to 28 July 2003. Well, the reason I asked. I know this guy was paid $25,000 to do it. Contract number F04611-99-C-0025. This is legitimate. Nobody, and this guy, Davis, he's got a dynamite reputation. You can't touch him. I mean, my kid was in um, high school, and mm-hmm. I gave him an assignment before he graduated, which was to uh, find Davis's book. Uh, his book was uh, Breakthrough Propulsion Physics, and to go through every single chapter and outline the chapter so that, the, so that when he got to college, you know, if he did anything that, that was in advanced physics that had to do with the with the UFOs or flying or, or spaceships or how do we get a how do we get a spacecraft to go to grow to go as fast as or faster than the speed of light as possible, that he would have been exposed to the latest ideas in it, and that was in that book. And in fact, the entire outline that David did is on this site. So chapter by chapter, you know, he goes through all this. So. We take we see Davis's name on this report. We we stand, we stand stand up, you know, and they salute over there. We know exactly who this guy is, and uh, we know well, more also in terms of uh, who was uh, the respond. The name of the responsible person was Franklin B. Mead, Jr., and we have some relations with him also in terms of knowing who this guy is. So well, the reason I m- mentioned it is because when I was flying for the General Electric, uh, Electric Company way, way back, 
back in the 60s. We were told by a senior scientist who happened to be sitting in the jump seat that they were already working on teleportation back even then. So it's this is something they've evidently secretly been working on for a long time, I guess. What would you think? Yes, it is. It started back in 1943. It was the so-called Philadelphia Experiment, and I was going to talk about that if I have time tonight. Uh, again, but uh, actually it was not the destroyer. Elgin's view was, uh, I think, the Martha's Vineyard. And it wasn't from Philadelphia. It was from Long Island Sound. And it didn't go to Newport. It went to, uh, I didn't go to Norfolk. It went to Newport News. Uh, was the corrections that Basiago had for the incident. But there was a okay. failure in the way they set it up. And so uh, although in the movie about the Philadelphia experiment, it shows a bunch of sailors getting fused into the hull of the ship and killed that way. It was only one sailor who says that, that died that way. So that was a failure. But we were already trying, we were not trying to make the ship invisible. We were trying to teleport the ship. And uh, it, it did not work at that time. But uh, apparently when we recovered one of the UFOs uh, and my uncle, Eugene Rothman, may he rest in peace, back engineered what was found at Roswell. I'll go over that in a little bit and probably next with you because so you know, that's important to know also. So, uh, you know, when we were... Uh, working later by the 60s, yes. Basiago claims it was 67 or 68 when he made That's his right. first um, teleportation jump. Uh, yep, he says that's that, what I was and told. It, and it, it says of interest, and I have a, I have a picture uh, in this article of um, of him, and the, way, the way he looked when he was living out in New Mexico at the time and, and doing this stuff. Uh, not far from Roswell. He, he was in a little town called White Rock, about nine or ten miles away from Los Alamos, mm-hmm. which is where some of the, the, the wreckage from the Roswell UFO went. Uh, it went to, the other went to Ray Patterson. Uh, a lot of it went to Ray Patterson in Ohio. Right. So anyway, uh, he says that uh, when he went on the jump, he went back. He was at Gettysburg. He did this, I think he said, seven or eight times, not just once. There were always tiny little differences that he would see in terms of who was standing where or how many people were where uh, as, as he went back each time. But he said on one of the jumps back, he saw his father. Uh, but his father was not looking right. His father uh, had a crew cut. His father was fatter than he remembered him from, you know, just before he left. There were other little differences. So he goes over to him and says, hey, Dad. And the father did not know he was going to be there because the father that he went they saw there was from five years before he had left. So, in other words, if he was uh, six when he went back, uh, his father was, you know, uh, uh, the guy that the version came back with was you know, like the age of one. So, I guess when he was a toddler, he recognized, uh, yeah, okay, my father had a crew cut back there or whatever. And he was he was fatter at that point than he is when he left. And the father got upset with him and, and said, I don't know you, boy. And because uh, he didn't want to give away what was going on. Uh, so, uh, but, yeah, the, the father, that's when the father learned that the kid was going to go there at some point in the future. So they brought him into the program. Now, the reason why they brought him in, this was not, Balsago's claim is not that he's the only person who ever traveled time. <laughs> Far from it. He basically says that almost every kid in his elementary school or close to this uh, or junior high school 
were doing it also. They were all kids whose parents were working over at Los Alamos, and so the government uh, was uh, was taking these kids with the parents' permission and using them as guinea pigs and sending them back in mass. And they would run into each other sometimes back there. But one of the, the funnier oh. parts of the story is way down where I was going to go, but uh, whatever, uh, is that uh, he had a couple of teachers that uh, were, were instructing him on, and how to, and how to get ready. One of them was teaching him how to read the 250, 40 to 256 letters of a start language that's supposed to be an alien language. You know, so at any rate, these two, two teachers, it turned out, became the principal of the elementary school and the middle school in town. In other words, the government had basically come in there and taken over the area and, and, and taken over control of the kids and even had the principals in the school so that, you know, it could all be done, you know, off on the side where nobody else, hopefully nobody else would notice. This is how an extensive pro- program the thing was that he's talking about. And I'll tell you something. I didn't expect to hear any real detail. I, 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 started, I won't really hear a nutback talk when I, I listened to the film. And I started listening to the detail. He names every... Every every place his father ever worked that was involved in it, especially the, the Parsons Corporation in Jersey. But uh, you know every 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 boss that his father had, uh, who they became, and so forth. Uh, you know how big they they got in in terms of running national defense. I mean, he really names names and he names dates, and he does a damn good job of it. And and there are some other people who have said yes that they were part of it. The government wiped the memories of most of the kids that, uh, out if they, if they could, but they didn't get everybody. He said he himself didn't start to remember this stuff until he was in his 20s. So they, they wiped them, but it was not a permanent wipe. Uh, anyway, let's see. Uh, so at this point, um, well, I can say in terms of similarities, the things that I worried about in the Torah Code um, in terms of looking out and finding what's likely to be in the future, I've always been concerned about, well, if I put something down, if I find something, you know, and people see it, they're going to react to it, and they're going to act differently. And if they act differently, then what's the value of what's encoded in Torah? Because they're going to do something else. And that's exactly the concern that Pegasus has. They knew that if they made any changes to anything, it would be dangerous as hell. And it was not predictable. So as I think we discussed in another show, let's take Pearl Harbor. Let's say you know ahead of time Pearl, the attack on Pearl Harbor is coming. So therefore, you tell, you tell the Japanese ahead of time, when they're getting ready to sail, we know you're, you're going to sail, you're going to attack Pearl Harbor, it's going to be December 7, 1941, these are the ships you're going to sink, and you're not going to get our aircraft carriers, and we're going to win the war, and we're going to come over, and we're going to drop two nuclear bombs on your head. Now, do you want to still sail? <laughs> I think I think they're likely to say no, but if they don't sail, what happens then? Well, well they had a movie about this. that, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can't uh, remember the, the name countdown. of it now, but final there was countdown. a movie countdown. made about that. Countdown, yeah. so, wasn't it? Final, say the again, final Larry? Countdown, final wasn't count- that the- one of my favorite movies, The Final Countdown. I love it. Yes. Especially yes. because the, uh, the Navy goes after the Japanese, uh, you know, zeros, and then the storm cloud, that, that whatever it was that sent them off into the past, it comes through again, 
They say, Dan, they're gonna, we're going to let them do it to us again. we got to turn around. Otherwise, it's not going to be an aircraft carrier to land on. Uh, really funny. Oh. The ship was in Nimitz. And, uh, you know, the Nimitz uh, has captured a Japanese uh, pilot. And, uh, yes. you know, uh, but then there was a, they rescued a senator who was supposed to be assassinated. So the senator wants to call, you know, the, the Navy in Pearl Harbor and, and have them release him. And uh, they refused to do that. But they finally said, okay, go ahead and call. Call, that's all right. So they get <laughs> on the radio the Navy and they said, this is the USS Nimitz. And, you know, we have a senator here who wants to talk to the same. The Navy comes in. Who the hell are you? There is no USS Nimitz. <laughs> so things start to happen. But in terms of the seriousness of it, where I was going was that we, the Japan declared war on us a couple of minutes late. You know, they missed the target date, the target time. Then we declared war on Japan. Then Germany declared war on the United States, and only then did, did the United States declare war back on Germany. So if there was no attack on Pearl Harbor, we don't declare war on Japan, and Germany does not declare war on us, which means that Germany does not have to face us in World War II, which means that Germany wins the war in World War II, you know, wins the fight over there, goes on to develop nuclear weapons, and probably like in a, a fantastic TV series on uh, Amazon Prime, uh, Man in the High Castle is about what happens, what would have happened or what the world would look like if the Nazis won the war. And the Nazis controlled everything east of the Rockies and the, German, uh, the Japanese had the West Coast and there was a tiny neutral zone in between, like running through Denver. That was about yeah, it. But uh, there wasn't. There were alternate realities. The same thing is true here for the Torah. So in other words, when the Torah says, and uh, let me see if I can pull up the exact uh, place where it has to be. Well, while you're doing that, what do you think? There's a possibility that that movie was made based on what they already knew. Excellent, because there's a pattern that when you see fantastic TV, sci-fi, or movies that are sci-fi, what's happening is the government is doing a soft disclosure, uh, like yep. with Star Trek. They're doing a soft disclosure, telling, telling them in Hollywood, here's the idea, you know, you can do whatever you want with it. Nobody's going to believe it is real. Everybody's just going to think, think they're having uh, fun. And, uh, yep. and that's it. So here, in terms of uh, what the choices here, like it says, Deuteronomy thirty fifteen to 18, See, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil, in that I command you this day to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord uh, your God shall bless you in the land wherever you go to possess it. But if your heart turns away so that you will not hear, but be drawn away, and worship other gods and serve them. I denounce you this day that you shall surely perish and that you shall not prolong your days upon the land when you pass over Jordan to possess it. So that seal, that goes for Torah codes, and that also goes for Project Pegasus. And they figured this out in the military, that uh, what would happen is that both destinies are there. In fact, what the Pegasus thing is more about is not just two destinies, the good and evil, but there's a multiverse. In other words, uh, there are an 
infinite number of possibilities of choices that people could have made in any mm-hmm. situation. And each court opens up a new universe. And it's claimed in, in Basiago's uh, works here, or the, his interview, that the government not only knows about it, but they're able to communicate with these other universes. So he says, for example, that um, he goes back to, uh, I guess it was Gettysburg, on one of these mm-hmm. trips, and he comes to come back in, uh, to his own time. And uh, when he gets back to his, uh, he gets up back to, the, at that time he lived, I think it was in New Jersey. So, man, now maybe it was uh, back in White Rock. Uh, let, let, me, let, me, yeah, let me interrupt you right there real quick. I don't know if you guys saw it, but when you're talking about multiverses and they can communicate, remember there was a movie a few years ago that came out called Another Earth. And one day, the people in America, the president and them, they were—they actually wound up in communication through NASA, uh, using some type of communications, talking back and forth between the two Earths that were par- in, like in a parallel uh, situation. Do y'all remember mm-hmm. that? Another Earth. I don't know if I remember that movie. Uh, certainly, the theme is, is very familiar. And as far as the communication, uh, all the microwave beams or whatever that go to communicate. Go through a tower, according to uh, according to Basiago, that's uh, just west of the Continental Divide, uh, out in Colorado, someplace. He gives the the coordinates, but it's from there on on this trip uh, that I'm, I was sort of talking about. You know, the, the, they got the beam, they figured out where Earth was, and uh, they got to the right uh, time apparently. But it was a, it was a parallel world. The kid goes home, goes to put his key in the door. And it doesn't fit, doesn't work. He starts banging on the door, and some unknown woman comes to the front door, and he says, "This is his house." And she thinks he's a nut, so she slams the door on him and keeps banging on the door. Finally, she lets him in, and she let him stay. He says for a week. When she when he heard she heard the whole story, she went over. I think this was in White Rock in Mexico. Because she she went over to the government, uh, I guess they probably went to Los Alamos, uh, the lab nearby, found somebody there who uh, listened to her, and then uh, you know they managed to uh, to get the kid back uh, to teleport him back into the right version of, of Earth at that time. So um, it's kind of like that. It's it's really weird stuff. But even looking at the Torah here, for them to write this, I mean, if you think about it. I've set before you this day good and uh, good and you know life and good and death and evil. Well, then there are two outcomes here, and one is terrific and the other one is horrible. And we see this over and over again as well. So what's it talking about? That he's actually going ahead and created ahead of time, or you know, physics laws ahead of time that allow us to have more than one place to go, more than one Earth to go to, with different mm-hmm. outcomes over there. Some planets. The difference may very, be very small. It may be like, uh, I remember, I think it was a Twilight Zone show I saw one time, where the only difference was that um, if you were driving your car, a red light meant go and a green light meant stop. <laughs> it's the same. You can yeah. imagine that if you get stuck in the wrong world, what a problem that would be uh, in not too long a period of time. Uh, in other worlds, uh, you know, the differences would be greater in terms of you know, your wife being there, you're, you're not being married, you have kids, you don't have kids, and so forth. So uh, anytime there's basically uh, an important choice, 
you could theoretically, by making one decision instead of another decision, you make for an entire world over there. So it, it really gets totally wild. Now, if you know about it, and the whole planet knows about it, and there are ways to control behavior where people, you know, have it set into their mind that you know, they can't, they shouldn't do these things, and maybe it would prevent people or, you know, discourage them from doing some things that are wrong. On the other hand, if you know that your wife got killed in a certain world because she walked across the street at the wrong time, you know, and you, you would want to go there probably and try to save her. And the second version of the Time Machine movie had that situation where his wife yes. gets murdered yep. in a park and then <clears throat> time traveler goes back and saves her from that fate, but she gets run over by a horse and buggy like a couple blocks away immediately after that. She couldn't, couldn't really change the whole fate uh, very much. And even that would, would set up a parallel universe. So these problems that were just uh, philosophical before, they're real. They're real. And mm-hmm. um, I was going to, uh, I think the next thing I'd, I'd like to go to, um, let me see, who is in uh, Andrew Basiago? I, I, I can go two ways over here. I can either go to the bottom of the article and take the time to go through his entire story. I've covered bits of it, you know, uh, jump places here and there. He gave you an idea of what he's talking about. What you would get out of that would be who he worked for, exactly when, and uh, what, were, what were the experiences on each of these different trips. Or um, I could, uh, in terms of talking about uh, what do I know personally about this stuff, uh, I can talk about my uncle Eugene, who's pictured on the, uh, the homepage of my website, there's three Rothmans shown. There's myself, there's my son, the physicist, and my uncle Eugene, um, uh, who uh, Bubak engineered what's at Roswell. So what do you want to do next? Well, why well, don't we was, uh, go ahead, Larry, ask some questions you said you had. Yeah, I was going to ask you too. because you know what, and, and you haven't mentioned the name Sapphire yet, uh, Joseph Sapphire, okay. but uh, I was wondering what his connection in the codes might have indicated uh, Sapphire's connection with Andrew Basagio, whether there's a, are they the same individual or are they different people? Are they connected? No, they're and... not no. Oh. Sapphire, first of all, his name is not Sapphire. His name, his first name is Joseph. In Hebrew, where he is, he's encoded. I was going to put this one, this, I was debating on this for the last bit of time. I don't know if the Sapphire, the Sapphire Matrix or not. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll just describe it to you. Um, after I met, um, well, what are you calling Sapphire? His Hebrew name, I mean his name, rather in English, uh, to, to, to spell it in Hebrew, there's one more letter. So in other words, the Sapphire part is the word Sapphire, which, which means Sapphire. And it's, uh, Samus, uh, Pei, uh, Yud, Resh. Now, that's pronounced Sapphire. There's one more letter in the Torah that follows that. And that one more letter makes it his real name in English. So Joseph, I refer to him as Sapphire. I don't refer to him by his last name, though you can find it if you're good with it, with uh, computers, uh, based on looking over my old stuff. Or you get it on my website. You, you, it could be found. Anybody that's, that reads Hebrew that knows the Torah, however, that looks at the original text, is going to recognize right away where that came from and we're just going to know the missing letter and it's going to be able to spell his name correctly and pronounce it correctly immediately. So it's not hidden very well. It's hidden mostly so that Google search doesn't pick up his name 
and that would have all kinds of people come into his house and ask the questions. This guy's a government agent, and, you know, for all I know, I mean, it's a threat that if they can come and put, uh, they can threat to put child porn on my website, they could also come and assassinate me. Likewise, somebody could come to this guy's house and say, well, you know, he's, he's got a way to figure out uh, who's going to win the, uh, the Preakness or whatever, you know, who's going, to, uh, who's going to win this or that or get elected in every election. So they want, uh, they want that from him, and uh, they threaten to kill him or his family unless uh, he forks over what they want. So there has to be some level of security here. So I refer to him as Sapphire. Um, sometimes I just want to call him Joseph, but you know, yeah, yeah. This, this what I saw with him was this. Uh, I went looking not for his name initially. I went looking for <clears throat> signal from the future because by the time I did this matrix, I already had figured out that he, the one or two things was true with him, and I was certain of it. Either he got a signal from the future. And the military now is able to get information in the future, which, by the way, is true. I know that at this point now. I didn't know it last time that I had spoken to you guys. And, yeah, they can do that. They knew about 9-11. And they knew about, um, geez, so much else. Um, They knew about the the, day the towers would be replaced by the Freedom Towers. Uh, They've known it all, what's coming. They didn't want to make changes because of what I spoke about before. You wouldn't wind up winning one war and losing the big one later on. But I went looking for signal from the future as the axis term. So when I find that, that's vertical. It's I think it was seven letters. Uh, Otme Atid. Let me say, uh, Ot, uh, three, May, Atid. It's eight letters, which is standard uh, for an axis term. To the left of that was Joseph in the open text. Not a big deal. Why? Because Joseph was mentioned, I think, uh, uh, maybe 180 times in Torah. Right? He's mentioned a lot. He's a major character in Torah. In the book of uh, Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I expect you But uh, on the line right directly under Joseph is the sapphire, plus one letter. So directly under it, there's no spaces in between. So I have basically a signal from the future, Joseph Sapphire, to confirm, yeah, that guy got it. And then under that is, uh, is, uh, uh, what was it? It's, uh, Bear. And the book that I had to check out the library was written by Greg Bear. And under <laughs> that was in open text was, uh, was, uh, Safer, which is book. So then there were, that was like one in chance of 17 million. Now, since I published that originally, I found a lot of other stuff on that tiny little matrix to take it to, uh, I think it was one chance in 95 billion that it would be encoded. So that's the story of Joseph Sapphire. No, he was not. He was definitely not the guy I met in the library. Uh, I mean, in terms of uh, Basiago was not that guy because uh, Basiago, I, I think, is uh, even at 60, is too young. And uh, so the guy was... Uh, you know, I mean, he, he, I asked him if he worked for NSA. He said no, but uh, I should have asked Army Intelligence because that's where he's, that's where he was working before with them. Mm-hmm. He also worked in the White House. Now that doesn't surprise me too much because I think the time he was working in, his, in the White House, um, you know, Obama was there, and Obama, according to uh, according to Basiago, Obama was uh, teleported to Mars. Uh, uh, twice 
and Basiago claims to have seen him on Mars, and that's kind of that gets into some interesting stuff there also. Uh, he has some interesting. Everybody that's elected president is told ahead of time. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, though, about Basiago's. Uh, I listened to an interview he did, and it was about like three hours long. But what he was talking about on this Mars operation were these huge, uh, I don't know if you call them insects or ferocious beings, entities of some type, but he kept referring to uh, uh, something that sounded very much like this 20 and back program where they, uh, officers are sent to Mars and they're there for 20 years and then they come back. Have yeah, you ever well, heard of that? Yeah, I, I have. I've heard. In fact, it was just today that I heard about what life forms Basiago saw on Mars. And he listed, so, I mean, I'm learning. Literally, I, this stuff is just pouring into me at this point. So it's, I'm, I'm trying as hard as I can to keep the website up to date, which is why I get a couple thousand readers from NASA, I mean, from the uh, Defense Department and also uh, from the uh, United Kingdom Ministries of Defense. They follow me very closely. You know, and they don't give me much, mm-hmm. because sometimes they give me something. You know, they, they can actually point certain directions. Uh, how by coming back to an article over and over again uh, with a frequency greater than I can see it merits it, until I nail what it is that they want. Then I go back and I look at the incident and I can see, okay, this is what they want. I put it in there and I see, yeah, okay, changes in the, in the readership indicate they've seen it. What Basiago said was that, uh, and this surprised me, I mean, I know about aliens being here, and as I said, in fact, I think I know one of them I've spoken to. I've done a show on Craig Ibrahimi before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, at any rate... Uh, he said there were two types of humanoids on Mars, and uh, he described one of them as being uh, fairly good-sized, tall. The other one, I think, was small, looked somewhat Asian or Oriental, and could have more than two limbs. So there were differences there, but he said the, he said the females of that species were very pretty. <laughs> I like to go kind of like I like I'm married to a Korean woman, and uh, sometimes I would watch we watch K-pop on TV. She's, she's always at night watching Korean TV, and I see a lot of gorgeous Korean women. So he, he kind of describes women like, like that. These girls always got their miniskirts on and looked like my wife did when I married her some 40, 40, uh, uh, 38 years, I guess, we might married right now, something like that. So uh, anyway, uh, yeah, two types of humanoids over there. One of them, the smaller ones at times could be cannibalistic, so you had to be careful if you went underground with them, you know, as to what your situation was. And as far as the uh, the insects, uh, I think he said they were the size of, uh, like, a small car, like maybe like a Volkswagen or something. He gave some other vehicle. I will have to outline that article. Uh, I just read it. I just read the I mean, listened to the interview for the first time today. But he said that uh, they could they could be ferocious and attack you. They said that, uh, you know, that they got on you, they were going to kill you. So you had to be kind of prepared for that. that that's the dangerous animal life form. And there were also, he says on Mars, uh, some reptiles that were up to 16 feet tall. So they had two carnivores on the planet, not counting the humans that occasionally, I guess, got hungry. There's not too much growing on Mars. Uh, whatever they grow, they have to I do underground. He was talking about some kind of uh, 
fungus or, or something uh, that they, they grew and, and used as food, but uh, he didn't know too much about the rest of the, the food that they were eating over there. But, hmm. um, yeah, there's there's some dangers over there, so I, I think if you go, you will probably want to be armed. Chances <laughs> are. And Nathiago uh, says that the, the purpose of this trip is just to um, uh, try to acquaint the uh, the indigenous life there to humans because we expected to go there in a much larger numbers. So whether or not we went to Alternative 4 ever and we started moving uh, massive numbers of people up there. There's uh, somebody, um, Dwight D. Eisenhower's great-granddaughter makes uh, a claim that they tried, the military tried to recruit her to go off to Mars to live. But when I look at the article, um, something just is not right about that woman, I think. I, I, I have a hard time accepting that she's all with it. Um, you know, there's talk about the feminine goddesses and stuff like that, which kind of turned me off scientifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like she's making up stuff. I, I don't know. But, but Bastiago, on the other hand, when I listen to him, he's just got so much good stuff he's putting out there. You would have to have a hell of a memory uh, just to mem- memorize it all, which he could have, you know, and, and also the motives, which I, I don't think he has it quite right, although I don't know. I, uh, at any rate, he changed my opinion when I, as I've started the last few days to listen to what he has to say and outline it. I, in my outline of his 97-minute video, which is at the end of this article, mm-hmm. um, I do point out some things he says once in a while that I have a hard time accepting so it's not a hundred percent acceptance but in general uh the stuff is so good and then i i, I gotta figure that when i look at how old was he he's remembering back what he was saying and what he was doing as a kid first of all a the government wiped his memory once he says but b we're talking about a period where he was between the ages of six and i think he said 11 is the last time he he, he did any of this stuff so that's such a long time ago. I mean, I, I can think of memories that I have from that time, and I'm not sure today <laughs> if they're real. Uh, one comes to mind where I was in Atlantic City, and I saw a giant crab on the beach that was like 10 feet across. So only because I don't think there's any crabs that are that big in the Atlantic Ocean do I think that was a dream. But, I, you know, uh, it, seemed, yes. it seemed real for a long, long time in my life. And, well, and, and that's a good point. Hey, what hey, is a dream? Yeah, go ahead, Larry. Yeah, Barry, I wanted to ask you something right here real quick before we move on along. Uh, you, you talk about uh, the Twin Towers and how it had, they had viewed it and they knew what was going to happen and the part yeah. about uh, to, to avoid a small war to win the bigger war, or et cetera, et cetera. And we're approaching uh, what appears to be an escalation of the Ukraine situation. What is the odds that they have already... They already know how that's going to turn out one way or the other, but uh, also there's threats of World War III. What do you see in all that with Ukraine and where this goes with Russia? Well, just a minute. Um, before I answer that question, I can come back and, and deal with the 9-11 thing a little bit. I just found where in my outline of his 97-minute uh, his video it talks about what he's seen over there. Let me read that, and then I'll tell you what I think about the other thing. He says over here they're moving scientists uh, like his father and CIA agents around in time, uh, in time and space intelligence uh, events uh, from the future, like Watergate. He said we're putting intelligence reports and giving to McCone, who was I think the director of CIA. Andrew uh, 
heard about the Internet age. He met both Bushes and Clinton right after they were apprised of their future presidency, as well as Richard Cheney, the future vice president. <clears throat> he says, I met Cheney on the project when he was 29 years old. Future presidents and vice presidents were told uh, the computer revolution, uh, revolution, rather, 9-11, where it was discussed several times that it was the replacement Freedom Tower. I can understand now on TV why Camilla Harris laughs her ass off. She showed herself. She shows herself every day to, day to be an absolute total dingbat. Everybody who hates Biden is afraid that he'll re- resign or be taken out in Article Twenty Five of the Constitution or whatever, you know, and they'll wind up with Kamala Harris as president. She laughs constantly. She just got almost no votes when she ran for president uh, before in the, in the primary. She got like one or two percent and dropped out. So there's, 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 there's no brain, there's no talent, and it doesn't matter what she says at all because this stuff is all predestined. She was told ahead of time, whatever the hell you do, go ahead, run, just run for it because you can get it just because the whole system is corrupt, but that's the way it's meant to be. So her laugh is, is much more understandable. God help us. <laughs> she becomes yeah, all right, so uh, your question was then about, well, what's going to happen? Okay, first of all, um, the purpose, uh, the original purpose uh, that Pegasus had was to try to prevent a nuclear war with the Soviets. So now we got the situation in Ukraine, what's going on there. I'm still trying to figure out that, but but what is, has been said in these circles, uh, where i got to go back and check my documentation, was that... Uh, and, oh, I know who said it. It uh, was said by Dr. Michael Sala, who wrote most of the uh, reference books that I use about UFOs. The guy is dynamite. You know, I mean, he really has the stuff. He's got a million Freedom of Information Axes filed. He has very, very good stuff, and, you know, on all the different types of aliens that are coming here and so forth. But at any rate, uh, he said originally, um, you know, it was started in order to prevent a war, uh, but he's saying that uh, Putin... Um, Putin invaded Ukraine because there is, there's actually two supposedly, but there was an ark, a space ark, which I think is kind of like Noah's ark, but it's a spacecraft, it's big, but it's activating, and and they don't know for sure when it's going to go totally active and appear in the atmosphere. They don't think it's going to be too far from now. According to that source, Putin already has control of one of these space arcs from Siberia. But this one was uh, was about 15 miles east of the town of Kyrgyzstan uh, in the uh, the desert that's there. So uh, there's a, a very small desert that's there, and that's where this thing is supposed to be coming back to life. So he does not want the Ukrainians or anybody else to get the technology that's in this arc. Now, there's supposed to be another one somewhere else in Ukraine, but uh, but Sal alleges that the purpose of the uh, invasion was to get control of these things. So you got you can imagine different countries that they know about this. Goes, I mean, there are a lot of countries that are involved. Uh, the guy that comes to name uh, immediately after him. Uh, by the way, I don't approve of the of obviously of the bombing that that uh, Putin's doing in the apartment building, innocent people, hospitals, you know, schools, stuff like that. Taking all that, you don't have to do that if you're going to just try to capture a space a spacecraft or something like that. Unless you're saying that a lot of the people living there are aliens already. 
But Haim um, Eshed, have you heard of him? The who? Haim H-A-I-M Eshed, E-S-H-E-D. Haim Eshed was the head of the Israeli Space Agency yeah. and has, yeah. was yeah. responsible yeah. for launching 20 satellites uh, from Israel into space. And uh, he was also Brigadier General. A very highly respected man in Israel. I think he died recently, but I, I heard that once that he was killed in a, in a terrorist attack. But uh, when I look at like Wikipedia and other places to see what's the deal with him, I say I think he was born in 1938, but I don't see a death date. So I should have it would have been I think about a year ago he got killed, unless that was disinformation that was put out and he's still quite alive someplace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Conveniently made him made him alive again. Anyway, Haim um, uh, Eshed said, and he, he wrote it out in Hebrew, it was translated into English in the Jerusalem Post, and then got published in the Jewish news and around the world, and the Egyptian newspapers carried the story. He said that the United States and Israel are working with aliens. So, if it's not only the U.S., we're pretty sure we can figure out that the Chinese have got some aliens they're working with, and you know, the Russians must have theirs also, but the Israelis have theirs also. might be why they're so good, they're just so good, great with rocketry. I mean, they have their arrow missiles, uh, their uh, uh, David Sling and so forth, uh, that uh, they shoot the uh, missiles out of the sky no matter where they are. Uh, I had a cousin went over to Israel, during the last war, he said, you know, hey, Israel gets attacked, and you're supposed to go into your shelter. Some people would just get out the hot dogs, you know, and set up the grill and sit there and watch these uh, Arab missiles get shot out of the sky <laughs> for entertainment. There's almost never one of these things get through. So they've got fantastic uh, weapon systems. And they may have picked up some of it from E.T., I, I, I don't know. But anyway, that's uh, – well, so any other – I hope I answer your question in terms of the Russian thing. So is is a real is a real problem a civil a a, a race of aliens that are not friendly to Russia, uh, possibly in charge of uh, that uh, space arc if that's what it is, is being activated. I don't know. I don't I don't approve of Russia's motive for whatever they are for what they're doing. Um, you know, he comes up with these uh, Putin comes up with these lunatic explanations always. He's killing all the uh, the Nazis there. Well, I mean, you know, hey, Ukraine is run by a Jewish president, they had a Jewish prime minister, and uh, you know they had plenty of anti-Semitism during the war. There's no during the World War Two, no doubt about that. I was under the impression the Ukrainian people had gotten better, even though there's still a lot of right-wing people over there. But um, hey, Putin can see what's going on there uh, better than I can. You know, so I've not been to uh, Ukraine. They've been to Russia, but never been to Ukraine. In the China oh, yeah. and Mongolia and some of the other places I've been that would be communist. But uh, at any rate, that's uh, in terms of where it's going, you go anywhere. I mean, what's this craziness? Also, we had Nancy Pelosi is threatening to go to, to Taiwan, and the Chinese are threatening to go to war. She puts her foot down in the country, frankly. <laughs> I'm not a Nancy Pelosi fan. I hope she's on the next flight over there. <laughs> 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 I could care less. But I see every Republican on TV, and I think it's a riot, all sincerely saying Nancy Pelosi should go to Taiwan. We should never back down. She should be brave. She should shock And I know it. In fact, every one of these, these guys is the same. So I think 
God, God, please let the Chinese kill her butt off. <laughs> you know, nonsense with like with health insurance. We have to pass the bill in order to, to know what's in it. <laughs> we don't need that kind of leadership in the United States. But anyway, I, I've said more than I should on that. That's a half. I got a, I got a question for you on on Basiago yeah. again. He mentions yeah. uh, Ed Dames and the Army Intelligence. Uh, I guess you could call it remote viewing. Yeah. Uh, are, you, are you familiar with more of that information that he talks about? Um, I remember the name Dames. I think I saw it today earlier. It's <laughs> sometime. Um, this is one of the people that were high up in there. As far as remote viewing goes, um, here are my thoughts. Uh, number one, if I don't think about it too much at all, remote viewing to me, as a scientist, I got a hard time accepting it, except for one little fact. I've seen it happen. <laughs> in terms of what I would logically deduce and what I've seen with my own eyes, this is the story. I have a story in the site of a guy by the name of Richard Robeson. Now, now uh, Sal, uh, Michael Sala says that there is actually in the clouds of Jupiter a, a city for a civilization called the Ashtar. So they're, uh, they're a, a civilization not friendly or hostile to us. They're largely military in nature, but they've got this huge city is floating in the clouds. I think, you know, in Star Wars, it's one of those places where it's kind of soft disclosure. You know, they had a, a star, they had a, a city in the clouds. Of, uh, I don't know if it, was, it probably was not Jupiter in that, uh, in that movie, but something else like that. Anyway... Um, Supposedly, uh, so Richard Robeson said that he, along with his father and his grandfather, were often taken. They would first drive from San Diego up to uh, Lake Mono, which is, uh, I guess, uh, just to the east of, uh, of uh, what's the, the National Yosemite, uh, when you come down from the mountains. Uh, and there's some there's some weird DNA in the water over there. That uh, NASA thought was alien DNA. Instead of having a phosphorus, they have uh, an arsenic uh, atom and molecule at that point. So anyway, uh, he was saying he would drive with his parents, with his father's grandfather, up to uh, to a point just north of Lake Mono. There they were picked up by a small craft and taken out to a big craft, which got them out to Jupiter, where they saw battle conditions. Uh, uh, battle stations were set on the, on the big ship that he was at, uh, it was on uh, between it and I guess it was maybe it was a reptilian vessel, whatever the, whatever it was. So it's all my story until you know he tells me that he can remote view. So at that time, and I show this in my site recently, I've updated the article. So at the time I was in Daytona Beach. David, my son, was going to Emory Riddle Aeronautical University. He graduated from there with his physics degree at the age of 18. Graduated, not went and graduated. He got his doctorate when he was 23. So this guy says to me that, and I said to him, okay, can you tell me something about my home? Now, he was out in California. I never met him before, did not have an, an iPhone at the time, did not have any way that he could see into my living room. So he says to me, well, I, I see, like, there's three things I see. Number one, I see like a menorah, you know? Well, we're Jewish, we have a Hanukkah menorah, but our living room, our, I mean, our dining room table 
the base of it was a giant menorah. So you huge thing weighs, I don't know, probably 150 pounds, whatever it weighs, I'm not sure, but huge. And it would dominate that part of, you know, that part of the apartment when you look over there. The second thing, he says, uh, okay, now, this is inside. He says, I see a palm tree. And, yeah, we have a, a synthetic palm tree we've had forever. It's in the living room. Uh, and it, besides gathering a lot of dust, I guess it looks okay, but we sometimes think about it a little bit out of it. It's always uh, hit me in the face when I was walking in the bedroom at night. But the third thing he said he saw really got my attention. He said there are skulls there. And yeah. a normal house is not going to have skulls in it, other than inside the people that live there, they're quite alive. However, about a week before I spoke to him, I had been to the Philadelphia Museum of Natural History, where in the souvenir shop I bought... Three, what was it? Three or four skulls. I bought Homo sapiens, Homo neanderthalensis, and Homo erectus. Three human skulls and an alien skull. And they were displayed uh, by the the kitchen entrance. So he's seeing these skulls that would normally not come. And he, he gives me off the top of his head. And I thought that was pretty good. So after that, I not not so willing to dismiss this stuff. A lot of, uh, of uh, Michael Salas books are based around uh, reports uh, of remote viewing. And I wish he had more sources, but uh, he says they're either remote viewers, the military has used them for a while, quite a while, uh, or uh, the other source, he said he's got a leaker in the military, in the Army. Uh, this person was J.P. <clears throat> I won't give his name, but I think, that, I think the leaks that we get from the military uh, on this subject, they're all deliberate. So they want to they want to disclose, but they're afraid of the panic. Supposedly, um, Trump was about to reveal everything. God bless him. But he didn't get the chance. But uh, the aliens themselves did not want it. They thought there would be a panic on the earth. The people weren't ready for it yet. And that's also what Haimeshin from Israel was saying. That, uh, that they, in fact, he's the one that said that Trump was ready to disclose and finally t- tell us the truth. And uh, the aliens that were involved uh, didn't feel good about it. And in the same way, I've spoken to you before about uh, uh, Craig Ibrahimi. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll refer to the audience about, about him. Mm-hmm. I got an email on January 26, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it, was 19, it was 2020, right after COVID had started in China wasn't really going here yet at that point, but it was about to in a few days. And the email said, Hi, I'm Craig A. Mahiri, and uh, I would like to invite you uh, to come to my home and see the world's only um, alien embryo. So the first thing I think is a typical thought. The guy's nuts. <laughs> but he really wants to fly me from Florida out to Vancouver, you know, in Canada and over to his home in Sook, Canada, which is on um, uh, the uh, the bay over there. Uh, so, the, Str- the Straits of Juan de Fuca, I guess it is, is what's, what's out there. And so, um, I listened to what he had to say about it. And as he started to describe it, I started to realize that it might not be dead. 
because the rock that it was in, first of all, it was in a meteorite. I, but somehow, the meteorite was not holding a firm temperature. It would vary by, it was pulsating like by six degrees Celsius or so, which is weird. But if there were a virus in it, then, um, yeah, viruses can do that when they're together in clusters. Uh, they can cause temperature variation and cause it to get cold. And these rocks were cold. According to Dr. Elaine Humphrey at the University of Victoria, and I interviewed her, uh, she said that uh, she could not explain it. Uh, they were looking for some scientist someplace who could explain the temperature fluctuations. They had the pictures of the thing, and uh, it just looked like an embryo. Um, you know, stuck in a rock. Uh, but uh, they were afraid to slice into it because it was so it would have been so valuable. He's so he's been trying to sell it ever ever since I first spoke to him. But when I heard about the properties of the thing, I said to Craig, you know, it, this there could be a virus here, and if I come out there and, and handle it or <laughs> get close to it, I could. God forbid I might bring a pandemic and start a pandemic over here, in the, you know, in my country. I said I'm not going to go over unless it's uh, unless it's properly secure, and it was not properly secure. Because I can see pictures he was sending of the laboratory he was using at University of Victoria, and people were handling it with their bare hands. I, I could not believe that. That's what they were doing. So what happened to this rock? That's an interesting story. Because I, I'm saying that this guy, I think, is an alien. So why? Firstly, I, I was going to put his picture up. He's, it's on my website, but if you look up Craig Ibrahimi, you'll get the pictures of him uh, on uh-huh. the site. Um, the guy sends a, a sample of the rock with the with the, an embryo in it uh, over to uh, Chandra Wickramasinghe at the University of Buckingham in England. And Wickramasinghe is the guy that's responsible for the uh, theory of uh, panspermia, the idea that life can go from one planet to another. During an asteroid impact, it could be picked up and then carried and planted in. Uh, during a, a giant volcanic eruption, if you could sign up in the Apollo uh, Earth with the solar wings and pick it up and take it over there, a number of ways mm-hmm. it can happen. And he says that, like a lot of scientists who, who accepted his ideas, he's not a small scientist. Uh, he's got a huge name. Uh, so a lot of people thought this was true. But anyway, he's supposed to be the top, top expert in virology. Uh, so he gets the he gets the sample. So a year goes by. And now Dr. Humphrey at University of Victoria wants to get this, his sample. You know, wants to examine it, and maybe if they have two samples together like that, they can afford to do something peck, kind of pecking away at the uh, the embryo to see what it, what's really there. So um, he she writes him a letter or an email. I have copies of everything here, including the shipping of the. Uh, I have a copy of the ship the shipment papers for the sample from Craig uh, to Wickramasinghe. So Wickramasinghe can't deny that he got it. He got it. He signed for it. All right, so she said, "Can you? See, I'm going to be in London in a, in a couple of weeks, and I would like it very much if you're done with this with Craig Sample that I can pick it up, take it back, and study it. And in the meantime, do you have any results?" So he says to her, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I put it in an outhouse outside my home in Sri Lanka, and it was stolen. 
Well, a guy that's got a world-class reputation for virology who bases his whole career on, on life and viruses traveling between planets is not going to let a sample like that be unprotected and get stolen. So that didn't make any damn sense at all, Mike. <laughs> so, uh, so sorry. So then I said, I'm going to investigate this guy a little further. And I start looking at everything he's written, and I start looking at everybody that he's published with. And one of the guys that he was published with, published with him, four months after he received the sample from Craig. And the article was about how the following year, which would be 1999, this was 1998 at this time, yeah, 1999, the end of 99, you know, there's going to be a pandemic that's going to hit the world. And it's going to be based on uh, impact from uh, by a comet or a an asteroid or something's going to carry the, the germs down to Earth, and that's that's going to be that. Uh, we should we start preparing for a pandemic now. So the name of the guy who wrote the article with him was Zheng Wenqiu. Zheng J I A N T Wen W E N Q Q U. So they published together. Zheng Wenxu worked where? And he worked in, uh, uh, not in Wuhan, but in uh, Shenzhen, China, at uh-huh. the Center for Infectious Disease Control. So uh, Craig sends the rock to the Gramasing. The Gramasing sends the, obviously gives or sells the rock to Q. Q takes it to the Chinese uh, Center for, for, the, for the Center for Disease, Infectious Disease Control. And who runs that? Well, uh, the freaking Chinese Army runs that. The same as in Wuhan. Yep. So this thinks to high hell. So I published it. I've been on the site. I've been on your site before about it and so forth. Try to get it out as far as I could, as far as you know, hoping that one or two things would happen. Either the government would come along and pick up, we pick up Craig, and I got to turn back to why he's an alien again. I think in a minute. But uh, I wanted them to pick Craig up. I wanted them to do an examination of Craig, as in check his DNA. And also check the rock and see what they could see from the damn thing. So, uh, at any rate, uh, that was not happening. But I found out Craig called me recently, like a couple weeks ago. And he was pissed at me because he knew I was putting this information out, which, you know, could mean he'd be be picked up. I found out he was stopped by the Canadian cops frequently frequently in the last year. So they became aware of him. Uh, I asked him if he could come to the United States and visit me here in Cape Canaveral, Florida, and uh, that's where I live. And he said he was, he was afraid to leave the country. Now, this is a guy who before was, uh, was, was making some threats originally because I wasn't responding the way, you know, I mean, I saw a potential threat to our country here, and we got a million dead Americans since I saw that threat. I have a feeling I wasn't too far off base in making that little projection, but I was trying to get our government to do something. But to try to get our government to do anything means we've got to depend on people like Fauci, who, of course, was doing this, uh, you know, um, uh, the research in, in reverse, data function research. Thank you. He's doing that over there. He's, he's bringing all kinds of money into the Chinese labs. You know, he was getting paid. He makes more than the president of the United States. For what, killing us? 
tell us you should wear a mask because we don't have to, and then all this other stuff. I mean, the guy is so corrupt, it's incredible. Uh, and then the whole government is pretty much like that. I don't have a lot of faith in what's running our country currently. As far as Craig and whether he's an alien, hey, I asked him on the first day, how did you learn about this? Because he didn't just pick up a meteorite in the middle of the countryside. Oh, no. Craig got some coordinates to look at. And I said, where did he come from? Well, you can think I'm crazy kind of thing. Well, uh, finally, I got him tell me. He said, I just heard it in my head. So, you know, aliens are supposed to have ESP. Yeah. And yep. he, was get, he was getting coordinates. He said, well, what did you do then? Well, then I, I, I took a course in diving because the coordinates were under the, under the ocean. You know, I'm referring to the seafloor. He, he had a nice boat. He does uh, clam fishing and other stuff for a living. Uh, he's got a lot of money. He says he's a millionaire. But at any rate, uh, Craig was, uh, you know, uh, he he got these coordinates. He went under the ocean. He found this thing under the ocean. So, I mean, it's insane <laughs> to, for him to find it. And he's finding this through voices that he's hearing. Can I have about a half, about a 37 break, a 30 second break? <coughs> oh, sure. Okay. Uh, Larry, what do you think so far? Oh, pretty, pretty interesting. I mean, that's really interesting stuff here. Um, wow, there's a whole lot to take in, but it does tie together a lot of uh, data that's been coming in. As you mentioned, the 20 and back program, and, and you know, we've had a lot of people talk about that one. Plus, uh, there was old rumors years ago of Obama being on Mars and being teleported and <laughs> Yeah. And now, basically, you know, there appears to be some particular evidence from somebody that saw him there. Can you imagine that? Yeah, and he was, uh, I guess, when they were kids and in the same program. So it, what astounded me was that the White House would answer something like that and say that he was never on Mars. Why would they even reply to it unless there was some truth in it? You know what I mean? Yep. And I do yep. remember. If it was, it, if it was absolutely a complete lie, they would laugh it off. But to say no, they, you know, they, that that's almost like saying yes. I'm back now. <laughs> I'm going to do one better for you. Yep. Okay. I'm going to give you some proof that what Pasiago is saying about Obama being up there and so forth about him being over Mars is not bullshit, part of the language. The proof is this. That 1,200-page report I mentioned, Mars Correct, mm-hmm. you know, critique of all NASA Mars weather data that I worked on for like eight years with my son, eight hard years. It says that one of the biggest lies the government puts out is about Martian air pressure. The government says the average pressure on Mars at what's called arioid, which is the equivalent of sea level, is 6.1 millibars. Now, Mm -hmm. the average pressure on Earth at sea level is uh, 1,325 millibars, 1.55 millibars, something like that. It's it's like 1,300 millibars here on Earth. Yes. So I'm sorry, 1,013.25 millibars. That's what it was. So in other words, Martian air pressure, according to our government, is like less than a hundredth of what Earth air pressure is. 
So what I've been waiting to hear all these years from Basiago, I got the answer today. I found it on another recording, and he's talking about being on Mars. He's talking about there was a rough landing and uh, and basically they kind of like a wreck the vehicle that was that they were flying around there with. And he said that he had a hard time breathing. Well, what do you mean a hard time breathing? If you have 6.1 millibars, like NASA is saying, you shouldn't be able to breathe at all. You should be blowing up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like in yes. Uh, the total, uh, total Recall, I think, was the movie you heard. Yes. You got four his eyes were coming there. His eyes are coming out of his pockets. The same thing as other people did. But but if you're talking about uh, what I say, what what our what our report says on the in the abstract is that the average pressure on Mars is 511 millibars, not 6.1. And I I've got all the math I need to prove that. And I say in the abstract, the end of the first paragraph, that it can go as high as over as 1,050 millibars at Hellas Crater, which is the lowest point on the surface of Mars. Mm-hmm. So what does Batiago say? He says that the air pressure on Mars is like it would be on Earth at 12,000 feet. Well, we have some mountains in the United States that are taller than that. Yes. You know, Whitney and Mount Shasta and Mount Rainier, they're over 14,000 feet. And people do not have a hard, well, they might be if they bad lungs. But if they're young and they're healthy, they can climb to the top and walk around over there. They don't mm-hmm. have to carry oxygen at that altitude if they're in good shape. So, therefore, you know, that's at 14,000 feet. So 12,000 feet, pressure is going to be higher. So I went in and I pulled a little, uh, I put this up on my site today. Uh, I think it was in one of them. It might have been in this in the article. Uh, the average pressure at, at 12,000 feet is uh, 644 millimeters, not 6.1. It's over 100 times more. And, in fact, if you figure that the average pressure, I don't know what altitude of Marcy was walking around. I would imagine they didn't land him on top of Olympus Mons, which is the highest mountain in the solar system. <laughs> I would All our landings have been below Arioid, so they're like 3,000, 4,000 feet, 4,000 meters, I'm sorry, below, you know, what was the equivalent of sea level. And there the pressures would be more in line, almost exactly or more than what he's talking about with 644. The point is that that we were we were basically right on the money. Ours were, our pressure is entirely possible and matches totally what Basiago has said. They, his, they're, they're, his figures, his, his talking about walking around. And in fact, there being other human species that are up there also, mm-hmm. as well as animals. You know, I mean, that's not possible 6.1 millibars. It's just not. So, you know, it took, when I started to write this critique with my son, originally air pressure was the first thing that was obvious to us. And then it began to be that we saw that all the other weather was also bullshit. Like, uh-huh. example, the winds. NASA published for nine months the winds with uh, the MSL Curiosity uh, rover. Nine months they put the winds out. And the winds were, I think the figure was something like 7.2 kilometers per hour from the east. Well, nine months. 
It never changed direction. It never <laughs> changed strength. It's always the same day and night, whether it is a global dust storm going on or it's not a global dust storm going on. So I called Guy Webster at, J, uh, at Jet Set Propulsion Laboratory in California. I said, Guy, <laughs> I'm looking at your weather reports. It's got your name on the bottom over here for these weather reports from Mars. And I say, I don't see how it's possible that you can see you can have the same uh, wind every single day for nine months. I said, not only do I think that's possible, <laughs> but when I look back at Viking 1 and Viking 2, which had an anemometer on each of those things to measure the wind, the wind varied every hour, every hour in direction and strength. So how can you have never changing? He said, oh, that's easy. We know the anemometer broke on landing, <laughs> which, which I do also. <laughs> you know, when I'm asking the facetious question. So, you know, it's a guy, why the hell is he your bullshit every day? This has, you know, NASA's name on it, but it also has your name on it. So every every school teacher around the world who wants their little kiddies in class to go write a report about Mars, they all go to your website, and they all pick out this stuff that's all bullshit and put it out. Teacher's very happy, gives them an A because it's got NASA on it. And the world goes on, you know, fat, dumb idiots. And he said, well, what should I do? <laughs> he take it down immediately. Right, not available, not available for the wind all the way back to the beginning. The next day, that's exactly what he and NASA did. So this is who <laughs> runs our government. And there's nothing on any issue whatsoever that I can see ever where they're believable. We need a yeah. change. And I'm not going to say what the change is, who it's got to be, but we need something better than this. Because we've got trash on the government right now. Well, I think what they just want people to believe that this is a uh, dead planet, basically, and nobody's there. Nobody could possibly live there. Well, first of all, if you go up there and uh, people see there are all these other species, then it gives credibility to all the reports of people that were abducted, which is, and they have been here, you know, and they take people, not not the Martian species, though, from what I can say. Yeah, more like the greys or the Nordics or the reptilians or whatever. But uh, these are different different species that are out there. And there's God knows how many species. You know, there's, there's just hundreds of planets that are, according to uh, Salo, Dr. Dr. Salo, uh, that are, are out there and, and traveling in space and so forth. So, hey, uh, I got we, a- don't, we don't want the panic. But it goes beyond the panic because... When you read all of Salah's books, especially the one on the Kennedy assassination, you know, what he says is what people have thought for a while, a lot of people have thought for a while. Kennedy was assassinated because he wanted the truth to come out. And yep. uh, there were too many people that had too much to lose as a result of it. So uh, I can't say that it's true. It wouldn't surprise me, but Salah makes the case in his book that the Kennedy assassination was ordered by... Uh, the um, chief of counterintelligence at the CIA, whose name was James Angleton, uh, James, yep. James Jesus Angleton was supposed to be his name. That's the name that he put in the book. And, you know, is he guilty? Is he not guilty? Well, you know, I'd like to see a trial. You know, let's have one for Hunter Biden at the same time and not be worried about Trump who wanted to tell the truth, you know, and who was trying to run his, his butt out of office for 
coordinating with the Russians, which he was not doing. He's not innocent of that. But, uh, I mean, this this, this is it. There's so much corruption. It's just, it oozes corruption. Every place you look. Yeah, let me ask you. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to ask you a quick question because I noted when I was reading some of your last article or twos, you talked about a John E. Brandenburg. And also, uh, recently, they put out the information of the existence of a dead humanoid civilization on Mars destroyed by massive nuclear explosion. And uh, I know that you did a code on that, and I'm not asking for the code, but uh, what do you know about uh, were there massive nuclear explosions uh, on Mars, uh, you know, in ancient times? Well, let me tell you what I know about Brandenburg. I know him personally. Uh, just trying to get my son to do an internship uh, with them at uh, I think uh, Orbitech is his company. He used to work for NASA. Um, yeah, he says that there were explosions in uh, oh, what is it, Planitia on Mars, that there were a couple of nukes that were dropped over there. And uh, it was in a nuclear war. They have That's not too far from Cydonia where that famous face is that it looks like a sphinx or something like that, and some of the objects that look like pyramids and, and so forth. So mm-hmm. in terms of uh, was there civilization there, well, based on what I'm hearing now about the, the Martians, even that stuff I learned just today, uh, what, 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 <laughs> what was being seen by people who, uh, who teleported there? Yeah, there was a civilization. There was apparently a nuclear war. The timing, however, I have a problem with because... Uh, Brandenburg says that the uh, explosions were, I think he says, 165 million years ago. It was or more. That's a very long time. So, in terms of um, preserving everything for that period of time, in terms of proving it, um, you know, he's looking at uh, the isotopes that he sees. That he can see radioactive. Uh, well, there's a lot of thorium, which is fissionable. It's on the Martian surface. So he said there was a case in Africa, in Oklahoma, Africa, where uh, there was a natural nuclear explosion. Uh, there was a lot of thorium that was in the ground. I guess it was an earthquake, and, uh, and air was exposed to the thorium, and there was water down there. The water boiled off, you know, because the thorium, like uranium-235, you know, it's fissionable and it's, it's hot. You know, so at any rate, the water boiled off, and when they boiled off, there was a meltdown. The thorium exploded, and that's what caused that explosion. So he thought that was the cause. For but in terms of the how, how accurate the dating is uh, with radioactive isotopes, I'm not sure that that he's correct on that. Um, beyond that, um, what was going to say about that? Um, yeah, there are other things that, that could, could have affected. Normally, when you go to, to estimate the age on Mars of anything, one of the considerations is, is how many craters there are. Uh, they form at a, normally a fa- fairly uniform rate, but not always. Uh, now, Santiago uh, says, according to the aliens, and I, I think that Sal wrote about this also, there was a fifth planet where the asteroid belt is right now, and it was destroyed in a war. So in terms of aliens being interested in what's going on on Earth, if they, if they already had a planet that was destroyed out there, um, yeah, they're going to be concerned about what we're doing. Um, but 
where you know when we look at Mars, you got half of it. The southern hemisphere is all covered in, in craters, and the northern hemisphere is almost none. So it's like something all of a sudden blasted the southern half of the planet, and that may have well, been they say there was, Yeah, they say up. there was a huge planet. Uh, it's in Ezekiel, yeah. and uh, it blew up. And uh, the story about that is in Ezekiel. And uh, it's about Satan, actually. And yeah. he was a merchandiser and had a inter I don't know if you can call it intergalactic, galactic, whatever. And uh, the, he, the creator blew it up. And that Mars was a satellite. And that's why half of it is <laughs> big time trouble, where the other half has virtually nothing on it. But that's just but what are. some people are saying, yeah. There is, there is radiological evidence, according to Brandenburg, that these two nukes were there. And he says in particular that when they went off, they were airbursts. They were not ground bursts. Now, if you have a ground burst, it produces radioactive fallout. But if you have an airburst and the, fire, the fireball does not touch the ground, then you don't get that, uh, that fallout. Mm. And uh, he, he said that the way the, the planet is burned over there is like, you know, it looks like it was burned from an explosion on high, like when the thing was entering, entering the atmosphere. You know, it could have been that the rock was compressed and it had uranium or thorium in it, but the, uh, the isotopes, the potassium and cesium and so forth, uh, they matched what is seen in a nuclear explosion here on Earth. So he thought they were mm-hmm. nuclear airbursts. It was done by uh, a malevolent intelligence, he calls it, uh, in his books. Um, anyway, we, we thought for a while we would, we would work with the guy closer. He wanted us to help him get some money for some research. Uh, he was doing into cold fusion. And mm-hmm. uh, hoping that some of the, the people that listened to me would, would maybe contribute something. But he couldn't get the money. We couldn't raise the kind of, the kind of money he was talking about. You know, then he okay, kind of we got about... The, uh, Seven minutes. So, what else would you like to bring up, Barry? <laughs> All right, I did pretty good in, in covering this time so far. So, I don't know. I had twenty-five items down here, which we which we went through about five or six. That's why I said I need at least two hours. You know, it feels good to have you ask me this at this point because I made my major points, I think, but. Let me look down here real fast and see what pops up. Okay, on Jesus. Um, He does say that he was shown by his father some films of the crucifixion. Uh, He says his father told him they had evidence of the um, resurrection. Now, I normally don't talk about Jesus. I don't write about Jesus because I'm not a Christian. I'm a Jew. So I'm not anxious to go, to go in there, and I don't have any personal beliefs in him that he was anything more than another Jew, uh, and that was about it. But when somebody says they saw him in this fashion, now you have my scientific – you cross the, the red line there. You cross into the, the <laughs> science, and here's what my concern is about that. Basaggio um, says that, yeah, the, the pictures he's seen – there were 600 other Jews who were crucified. There happened to be two others on the day that they got the pictures. Was it right? I don't know. We're not even sure of the actual year of the crucifixion. So we uh-huh. would think, you know, uh, maybe 33 years after uh, the year zero or whatever. But, in fact, uh, the time in Talmud that uh, there's anything mentioned about a, a Jesus 
the sorcerer, he's called, who's being uh, executed for, for the practicing magic and leading Israel astray, is back about 64 B.C. So there's that's, so, so my question here is, are you going to set the timer on, on, the, on the time machine? You've got to have an accurate date to go to. And Christmas Day would not be it because that was selected because, uh, you know, people were worshiping uh, pagan gods in Europe that, uh, you know, yes. it was a winter god or something like that. So, you know, you can find lots of challenge. So the date is, is the first thing that's in question. The second thing that's in question is the moment you tell me you've gone back in time and there are two people who showed up at the tomb over there, which is what it says in uh, Luke uh, 24.1 to 24.9 is where it's discussed uh, with two people. Uh, two things came in there. It's described as having, you know, radiant or luminescent clothing, you know, or, or, or one, one translation says like like uh, like lightning. Well, if you're going to go through a, a wormhole, there's going to be enormous electric charges. And you yeah. tell me now that somebody has gone through a wormhole, has gone back in time, to that time, and it suddenly appears he's not going to, he should be, I would think he's going to be glowing at that point. But when you tell me you've had the scientists go back there, then the question is, are we seeing angels or are we seeing scientists? So there was a lot of questions that came up with that uh, before I sign off on that one and say, oh, yes, so that's, that's who they saw. You know, I want to know who those, who those two people were that showed up with the crazy clothing that was glowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they have done some work on the shroud, and they've come to the conclusion it's a 3D image. They come to the conclusion that it's not normal burning; it's radiation burning. So, and it's a 3D image. So, whatever was going on there was way beyond our physics. I would think it could be true, but originally, the Vatican said that it was not legitimate. Originally, they said they looked at it and they did carbon-14 tests on it, and the carbon-14 test showed a dating of like, uh, I think, 1300 B.C. Not B.C. Yeah. Uh, A.D. A.D. Yeah, it's been disputed so, back and forth. So that, and also, originally, I had to discover a magazine that, that covered the analysis for a long time when I was teaching. Uh, it says that there were pigments of iron oxide on it, which is, in other words, paint, you know, for the, mm-hmm. for the red color paint, that they found uh, definite paint, pigment, uh, paint pigments and preservatives on it. So I, I'm not going to I'm not going to give my blessing to that one. Uh, let's see what else what we got here. Less than, two, what, less than three minutes. Yeah, uh, a couple minutes. Okay. Um, as far as why Obama killed the space program, um, a, he saw these creatures there. That wasn't anything that he wanted to tell people about, which was a good thing because it raised too many questions of too many possibilities of, of a panic. I'd be, uh-huh. of course, as we, we discussed before, you had the fourth rate of Nazis involved in our space program up the kazoo. And I guarantee you, if they gave us what we needed to get to the moon, and we were, and they were working with UFOs in World War II, and they were working with teleportation whether it was a Diglock or whatever it happened to be, but they probably got some people up there also. And in yeah. fact, I think they, they claim that they did that. So we discovered the, the depth of, of, of cooperation between Nazis and our government, uh, the so-called Fourth Reich, 
and uh, and is is incredible, and that's uh, the biggest danger in talking about it. Uh, so I mean, we've, we've gone into uh, uh, the uh, the fourth right before, and what happened yes. after World War II. Um, the flyover of nineteen in 1952 of the Capitol building by nine UFOs that were doing, uh, I think it was uh, 7,000 miles an hour uh, over the city of Washington, which was observed by President uh, Truman mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, those things, okay, I guess uh, we're about out. Um, how do they get? Uh, we've got the links of your website up, so they know how to get to okay. it. Anyway, yeah. thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Larry. I guess we got to sign off. We're out of time. Anyway, good night, right. everyone. Thanks an awful lot for inviting me, and uh, stay tuned. But uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's more out there than anybody can believe. Oh, it's, I know. Uh, yeah, it's not amazing. A picture. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. Take right, care. Good you guys. Again. Good night. Bye.